Like Joel said, my name is Jazz. Um, I've been here once before, um, and I've met some of you guys before on September 1st, 2019. It was a special day for me because that was the first time I got to meet um, the people of Crosspoint in their building and see what you guys do and the family that you have here. And since then, I've gotten to meet some of you and get to know some of you, um, and I've just been blessed by those relationships Thank you, Joel and um, Julie and Drake for leading us in worship. Um, I get to serve on the worship team at our church, Connection Church, and that takes lots of time and effort and energy. So um, thank you for doing that, leading us to declare the content of the gospel together in song. So I appreciate that, and I know everybody else does as well. Um, Near the front of the rows, I've brought, actually some of these people I didn't know were going to be here, but... (laughs) It's my people. But um, mostly, I invited my core team from my gospel community. That is our small group. I get to lead. um, And these guys have been an encouragement to me as I've led people to the gospel there, but also as I've, like, longed for and um, grown to loving to teach the gospel and preach the gospel. Um, And then also we have a few other people that decided to, to show up as well. It's a surprise to me. So... Actually, I knew Katie was going to be here. I didn't know Rachel was going to be here, and I didn't know Nicole was going to be here. So, thank you. Um, So, I do serve our church uh, by leading a small group, also playing the bass, which is not that big of a deal unless you're a bass player. Anybody? See? So, that's okay. Um, But I love doing it, and um, sometimes, every once in a while, people are like, man, when you play the bass, it just leads me to love Jesus more, and... Um, that's the best encouragement I can get. It doesn't happen really ever, but in my head, I wish it did more. Um, but it's okay. Lead and serve in the unseen ways, right? So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Um, I want to invite you there. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one um, underneath your chair or the, underneath the chair in front of you. When I say Luke 15, raise your hand if you know what we're about to read about. All right, all right, sweet. My hope is that we would come to this text with a fresh perspective. Um, If you're like me, the first time I read Luke 15, and if you didn't raise your hand, you're actually in a better spot than the rest of us um, because you just already have a fresh perspective. But if you're like me, you left remembering only half the story. So we're going to be in Luke 15. And um, before we get there, I want you guys to know that what I said in September when I was here is still true, that our church loves you, and our church is for you. Um, At 9.30 this morning, there's about 50 people in a room gathered praying for you. Um, So know that this is still true, and I'm not here out of obligation. I'm here to serve and because I love you. That's it, and because I love the word. Um, So as we dig into this, keep that in mind. Uh, this This isn't just a job for me or like I'm filling in. I hope that I'm not just filling in, but that I'm serving you guys and loving you guys through this. So that's still true. So I'm so glad that you've invited me back. That just says something already. The first time I was here, apparently I wasn't a heretic and you guys invited me back. So so that's good. And so we'll be in chapter 15 and I hope that's true. And I know that's true again for us today. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 15. And I want this um, to be a fresh perspective as we dig in 
to the text, um, and I know we don't have enough time this morning to unpack everything there is to unpack with Luke 15. I get that. That's your homework. Um, But I hope that we leave here with a clear understanding of the gospel through the story that Jesus tells. That's my hope. And if I had to give this sermon a title, it would be The God Who Gave Us Everything, capital E, everything. So as we flip there, we'll have to do some work um, understanding the context. So we're in Luke 15. Luke is the third gospel. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is the... um, the story of the life, death, and resurrection and what Christ has done for us. Luke is the third one, and it's the longest one. So if you have never read the Bible and you want to read the gospel, read Mark. It's shorter. Um, Luke, maybe later. He's a doctor as well. He's a physician. So just the way that he writes, um, you'll see right away. It's fantastic. Um, but it is the longest one. And if you want to continue reading, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Um, so... Collectively, Luke has written more of the New Testament than any other writer. That's Luke. And he's only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. Once is to tell us that the Bible tells us he's a doctor, which must be important. The other two times is to tell us that he hung out with Paul. That's it. That's all it tells us about Luke. But through history and the way Luke doesn't mention himself in his gospel, but we know through his writing that this, in fact, is Luke. Only a doctor would use words like this. So, that's Luke. Um, We're in the 15th chapter of Luke. Jesus has been mainly performing miracles and telling parables. Um, Most of us know what miracles look like. Some of us might not know what a parable is. It's just a story that tells or paints a picture of something bigger. So, I mean, Jesus could do this a lot better than I can, but if I was to say, the kingdom of heaven is like this music stand, and I, I don't know how to do that, but Jesus could, and he would do it fantastic, and people's minds are just being blown, right? Left and right. So that's, that's where we are in the Gospels. Why did Luke write this Gospel? Um, we don't have to dig too far. It's in the first four verses of the book. So let's go there and find out why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. My Bible's frozen. All right, verse 1. Why, did, why would Luke write the longest Gospel? It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, namely, people have written and taught you what Jesus did for you, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty containing or concerning the things you have been taught. So what's Luke's goal? I want you to know with certainty what you've been taught about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So that's, that's why Luke wrote this. And if you flip to Luke 19, I think the theme verse of the book of Luke is verse 
10 of chapter 19, and it's after the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man, a wee little man. So after the story of Zacchaeus, at the end, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And as we read Luke 15, you will find the same theme here. God seeking and saving what's lost. And so up to this point of the book, Jesus had mainly been performing miracles and telling parables. But if you're like me, um, you might ask yourself, if Jesus is performing miracles and telling these stories about how grand the kingdom of God is, um, and he's healing diseases and raising people from the dead, that seems like the guy you don't want to kill. You want to keep the guy around that's healing all your diseases, right? Luke 15 is one of the reasons Jesus gets killed. Luke 15 is one of the reasons that Jesus gets killed. And I say that because when you start to take what people are holding to tightly, and you start to pry that out of their hands, they get aggressive. They get aggressive. And he wants to do that for me and you. And it's in his mercy that he actually wants to do that, to start to peel our fingers back off of what we hold on to so tightly so he can replace it with something better, himself. That's a whole sermon, so we'll, we'll keep going. I'll, I'll be back, hopefully. So now, uh, we need to understand also, who is Jesus talking to? Because if we don't understand that, we might miss the point of these stories. And so there's two groups of people, and it tells us in verse 1 and 2. So let's read that. For starters, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups of people with them, with Jesus. The first being the tax collectors and sinners. Now you hear the term tax collectors a lot. Um, why is that important? Why, why is it important to to specify the type of sinner as a tax collector. I'll tell you, as we do in our culture, we don't understand tax collectors the way the people did in first century Rome. So this was one of the most hated people there was in first century Rome. Why? At this time, Rome ruled over a large piece of land, all the way from England to India. Think about that. That's a lot of land and a lot of people. And it's not like today where if North Dakota, anybody from North Dakota? I like to say it still. Um, you're my friend. So uh, so if North Dakota was like, we're tired of being the lesser of the two Dakotas. And they band together to take over the country. There would be helicopters. There would be you know, airplanes. Uh, missiles, it'd be over quick. In first century Rome, they didn't have missiles. So how do you keep land that large, people of that number, in check, under control? A massive, massive army. And how do you fund a massive army? Taxes. So 
not only were they funding the army, but tax collectors would come to you and say, you owe $100, even though you owe 70 They would pocket 30 right, because they're liars, and then they would fund the army that's going to later come and rape, steal, and pillage everything you love and own. You see why it's important, why it's a big deal that Jesus is hanging out with these guys? I don't even know a tax collector from first century Rome, and I want to fight one. Like, get in the octagon. And then there was the sinners. Uh, sinners were just like the lesser of the society. Um, they, were, they had diseases, so they were the lepers, pro, uh, prostitutes. They were just the lowly in society, and they would just classify these people as sinners. And Jesus is hanging out with them. And then you have the Pharisees. These people, the Pharisees, they're a lot better than you. Um, they had the five, first five books of the Bible memorized. Did anybody start a Bible reading plan? I think I might be in Exodus for 40 years. Anybody else? That's right. So these people had Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, this Leviticus memorized. All five books of the Bible. You get up at five in the morning to um, pray and read the Bible every morning. These guys haven't slept in weeks. Like, that's all they do. So they're better, right? They're the religious elite. And so they see Jesus hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors, and they grumble, why is this guy not hanging out with us? We're better. And to that grumbling complaint, Jesus looks at them and says, let me tell you a story. I heard a pastor once say, um, if Jesus looks at you and tells you, let me tell you a story, you're about to be the bad guy. So let's keep reading. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 3. He tells this story about a lost sheep. So he told them this parable. Again, a story pointing to a bigger purpose, a bigger meaning. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The first thing that Jesus teaches us about the Lord, our God, in this story is that God looks for the lost and he parties when he finds it. God looks for the lost and he throws a party when he finds you. He starts in verse 4 by asking them a question, and it's meant to be rhetorical. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And they're probably thinking, no one, that's a bad business idea. Don't leave ninety-nine for one, that's a terrible idea. And it would be a bad business decision unless one thing was true. 
the business that you're in is finding the lost. God is in the business of finding the lost, and that's why Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He starts the parable by flipping what we believe about the world upside down. And what does he do with the sheep when he finds it in verse 5? Rebuke it? No. Punish it for straying off? No. He throws it on his shoulders. A sheep can weigh about 100 pounds and rejoices. And then he invites his friends over and parties over the lost sheep that was found. Now, it doesn't say if like, he tended to the 99 or not before he went to party, but I like to imagine he still left the 99 and like, went and partied with his friends and they're still out there to the wolves and stuff. So that's just the picture in my head. I don't know what, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us if like, he mended, he made sure they were safe, and anyone partied. It doesn't tell us. So he invites his friends, parties, and then he gives us a, a picture of what heaven's like in verse 7. Verse 7, take a look at it. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's more joy over someone who repents than 99 who don't think they need to. And I'm happy to say that this is the culture of our church. The heroes in our church are the men and women who are killing sin by confessing, repenting, and experiencing the joy of the gospel in it. That's who we follow. And if this is what heaven's like, and if our churches ought to be a microcosm, which is just a small picture of a bigger thing, of that, then we have to ask ourselves, what are our churches full of? What are our churches full of? Is it a bunch of people who don't think they have anything to repent of? Or is it people that still reek from a lifetime of wandering? You see, the sinners and tax collectors were drawn to Jesus. The lost were drawn to him. And I'm afraid that most churches aren't attracting the same kind of people Jesus did especially in the Midwest where everyone's a Christian. Tim Keller puts it this way, and I'll read it slow because it's quite long. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious by offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today don't have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to, to contemporary churches. We tend to draw conservative, conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated, or the broken and marginal, avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus did, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. My prayer is that our churches would look like Jesus. The lost in our city would be drawn to our churches. 
then he tells another story. The parable of the lost coin. Starting in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house to seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the lost coin that I had lost. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What I think we learn about God in this part of the story of the lost coin is that God will make a mess around you to find you. God will make a mess around you to find you. He sweeps the house until she finds it. One silver coin is about a day's worth of wages, so it's not a small amount. Um, so it's significant and valuable. Let me ask you this. Have you ever lost something? Um, I do it all the time. Or I'm trying to find something that I have no idea where it's at, like a battery, right? And then I go to the junk drawer. Does everybody have a junk drawer? It's usually in the kitchen. All right? We're on the same page. And when I'm done sweeping through the junk drawer, all I leave behind is a mess, but I found one more AAA battery. That's the point. No, I'm just kidding. That's a dumb analogy, but it's a tiny picture of what it looks like for God to find the lost. Here's what I mean. He will make a mess around you to find you. Take a second and just reflect on your own lostness. What pieces did God have to flip around and destroy around you to find you? What did he have to flip upside down in order for you to see him as your only hope? And as Christians, we actually pray for this. God, make a mess. Let the thing that's holding my family member or my coworker or spouse or girlfriend, boyfriend, let it fail them. Flip it upside down. Why? So that we would see you as our only hope. That seems like an insane thing to ask God for, doesn't it? Why would we ask him to make our lives on earth miserable? Because we know that the things that we hope in apart from the Savior alone will leave us lonely, desperate, and longing for something better. And God gives us something better. Spoiler, the Son. And then once we have been found again, what happens? Another party. There's rejoicing in heaven when she finds the coin over one sinner who repents. And again, I like to like, my imagination goes crazy. She probably spent the coin to like throw a party. Like, I found the coin. Let's party over this coin. I'm going to spend it. But the fact is I found it. Anyway, use your imagination. It doesn't tell us. Our God is a God of joy. How often do we think of God as having joy? If you're like me, you tend to think he's looking for the next opportunity to crush you. I don't think about his joy. Isaiah 62, 5 says that God's joy is like the joy of a young man at his wedding. I was there. There was tears everywhere. 
Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. It's profound. It's like powerful. It hit me. God supremely values his own joy and finds his highest joy in the recovery of the lost. God supremely values his own joy and he finds his highest joy in the recovery of the lost. Think about that. Do you think of God as joyful? And we'll spend the rest of our time in the next story, the story of the prodigal son. So let's read it together, starting in verse 11 through verse 32. It's a longer passage of scripture, um, and as we say at our church, if you get lost or if you start like spacing out and thinking about other things, or like what's for lunch later, um, that's cool, but pay attention to what brings you back. So starting in verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property. Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pig with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this yours 
this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to take a second and define the word prodigal. Um, It's not a word that we use much. Prodigal just means extravagant spending or to have spent everything. Um, You know what this looks like. Every time you go out to eat, it's prodigal. Um, Movie theater, popcorn, prodigal. Anything at the fair, like a turkey leg at the fair, prodigal. It's the mindset of, I don't care how much this will cost, I'm willing to purchase it. So, verse 11, now that we've defined the word, what it means to be prodigal, um, the first verse of the story we need to get. And if we don't, we will miss the gospel. There was a man, and he had how many sons? Two. Two sons. We got to get that. And spoiler here, um, they're both lost. I don't want you to think one's better than the other. Um, And it's split into two pieces. The first part of the story is the younger brother. The second part of the story is the older brother. He says he has two sons. And as I was thinking about this and, and studying this, it's really funny. My wife and I will meet other dog owners. And one of the first questions they ask is, how many dogs do you have? I say, two. But I only talk about one. And if you're in the first two rows, you know my relationship with the other one. But that's not the point. The point is, people will listen for two. And the next question is always, what about the other one? And I say, babe, you tell him. Because he's a demon. So, in the same way, if Jesus says there was a man with two sons, and we leave here talking about how good or bad one of them was, then we've missed the gospel. The story doesn't make sense apart from both of them. So there's a man, two sons, and the younger one goes up to him and says, Hey, Dad, you know the estate I'm supposed to get when you die? Can I get that right now? I don't think I have to explain to you the culture these people lived in um, in, first sen- in the first century to, for you to know that that's extremely disrespectful and dishonoring. Um, to the father. In other words, dad, can you die already? You're as good as dead to me. Can I just have your stuff? And the father gives it to him. I don't, doesn't really go on about that. He's very gracious. And the son goes and squanders it on reckless living. Goes to Vegas and spends it all. Gambling, prostitutes, you name it. And once he spent everything and he was desperate, he hires himself out to one of the citizens to feed the pigs. Goes to a pig farmer, hey, can I work for you? Yeah, you can, go go feed the pigs. And he's so hungry that he starts to eat pig slop. If you don't know what pig slop is, I um, encourage you to Google it. But in the end, it is, Google says, it is not appealing to humans, but oh so delightful to pigs. So this is what he's eating, because he's that hungry. And then he came to himself. 
don't miss that. He wasn't squandering his dad's money, realizing what a terrible thing he did, and then coming to himself. He looked at his life and said, this isn't fun anymore, and then came to himself. See, if we allow our circumstances to inform our repentance, we will never experience the true joy of the gospel. Instead of, I broke my dad's heart, Father, forgive me, he goes, this slop is nasty, let's go back. And then he practices a repentance speech. So first, let's not see um, the younger brother here as a hero in this part of the story, um, but also let's not like, see ourselves as the hero either. It's really easy often to, to think that we would do it differently. Um, so this could just be a call to repent of that. Uh, if, you're, if you're like me, you've at one point in your life thought, well, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Yes, you would have. So he gets up and he starts his journey home to better circumstances. And while he was a long way off, while he was a long way off, there's only one way that the father would see his son from a long way off, and it's that he was looking for him. He was looking over the horizon, waiting for his son to come back. The father isn't sitting there waiting. In all three stories, we see a picture of the father leaving the 99 to go find the one, sweeping the house to find the coin, and now looking over the horizon to long for the son's return. And when he sees him, what does he do? In his culture, a man of this stature doesn't run. Um, he, would, he was probably wearing a robe, so he had to pick it up and show his legs. In this, in this time and age, that's extremely humiliating, um, especially for a man of this stature. But the father runs to the son and does what? He embraces him in his filth. He kisses him, even though he's been eating pig slop. Look, some of you might need to hear this. God isn't mad at you. He loves you. He's longing for you to come back. The thing that you did to dishonor him this week, the, the ways that you've taken from him and taken from him and worshipped the thing that he gave you rather than the giver, even in all of that, he longs for you to come back. Can't wait to embrace you. He doesn't wait for the son to clean himself up before he embraces him. He doesn't wait for the son to have a good enough repentance speech before he embraces him. And he doesn't wait for the son to even make it all the way back to his house before he runs and embraces him. Then he says, quickly, give him give him a ring. Give him, give him the best robe. The ring is a signifies authority, so now he has access to the, the family bank account again. Right? That's not what this ring means. I don't know why you, I did that. He says, give him the robe. The best robe belonged to the father. He said, put, put shoes on his feet. This is signify that he's not just a servant, because servants didn't wear shoes. And he kills the cat and, fattened calf, which was reserved for special occasions only. Friend, our God finds joy in seeking and saving the lost. This is usually where people think that the story ends. And if you're like me the first time, 
I read the story. This is all I remembered. But this is a story of two sons. Scarier of the two is about to come up. In verse 25, the older brother hears the commotion and he asks one of the servants, what's this all about? What's going on? And the servant says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And what is the older brother's response? He was angry. Why was he angry? He tells the father. The father leaves the party that he threw. Think about how humbling that would be for the father. Um, Everybody's probably thinking, where'd the guy that threw the party go? If I throw a party and then just leave, think about how awkward of a spot I'd leave you in. But the father does that. He leaves the party and goes to the older brother. Again, he didn't wait for the older brother to come in. He went out to, to him. And he goes and entreats him. This word entreated just means he earnestly and anxiously asks him to do something. In this case, come party with us. Your brother's back. And listen to the older son's response. Look, you, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, doesn't even say it's his brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In other words, I'm not like him. I'm better. I don't take your money and squander it. I don't dishonor you. And all I want is a party with my friends. I don't want you. I don't need your love. I just want the things that I can get from you. Do you hear it? Do you hear why the older brother is just as alienated from the father as the younger one? When we look at our own good works, we almost always um, compare ourselves to others. When we look at our own good works, we almost always compare ourselves to others. And we see this clearly in a story just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 18. Again, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. So if you want to flip there, I'll read it to you. Um, There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And again, in verse 9, he tells us, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the Pharisees. And he tells this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Give me, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Jesus redefines sin, doesn't he? Up to this point, you may have, um, like me, thought that sin is just the bad things that you do. And if that's true, and um, as long as you're like the older brother and not like the younger brother, then salvation's in your own hands and you're good. Until you're not. It's deeper. Jesus tells us that the biggest danger to your soul this week isn't that you're going to lie to your coworker. It isn't that you're going to lash out to a family member or be lustful. The biggest danger this week for you is being alienated from the Lord. And if the enemy can keep us believing that sin is just the things that we do, the bad things that we do, then we're toast. He wins. One of the scariest things that Jesus says in the Gospels, I think, is in verses 21 through 23 of Matthew chapter 7. In verses 21 through 23, and it has to do with um, our works righteousness, meaning our works, as long as they're good, will earn favor from the Lord and he somehow owes us salvation. Here's what he says. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me workers of lawlessness. Isaiah 64 tells us that our works are like disposable rags. Tim Keller puts it this way, the main thing separating from you, you from God isn't sin or the bad things that you do. It's your damnable good works. So when I was in high school, um, even before that, but mostly when I was in high school, um, this was me. I would have called myself a believer, um, mostly because I wanted my wife now to like me. But I didn't have, I was just a Pharisee, I didn't have um, any of the Bible memorized, but what I did have is I had really good grades, good reputation in my family. My dad would boast about me to his friends. I was a good kid, good manners, good everything, but I wasn't good. I thought that as long as I'm good, I would get to go to heaven and marry Brianna. As long as I wasn't like the classmate who got kicked out every day, I was good. As long as I wasn't like the peer who talked to his parents all the, talked back to his parents all the time, I was good. And I was missing the good news of the gospel in my life. If I could illustrate this for you, um, I heard this illustration once. And has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Huge. Um, at its widest point, the Grand Canyon is 18 miles wide. It's like bigger than Sioux Falls, right? Something like that. And if you and I went to the Grand Canyon and I said, Hey, let's have a contest. I bet I can jump further than you and get to the other side, get closer to the other side than you. 
and we step back, running start, we both jump, and I made it three feet further. We're both dead. We plummet to the bottom. And the gospel makes this even scarier. The gospel says that we are dead in our trespasses, and dead men can't even jump. But the gospel is this. God, who gave us everything, sent his son in our sin and in our rebellion while we were his enemy to die for us. Jesus lived a perfect life that makes the Pharisees look horrible and has imputed his righteousness to us, meaning our bank account for righteousness is empty and he just filled it and there's an unlimited supply. That's what imputation is. So now, when the Father looks at you and me and our works, he only sees Jesus. Look, I'm a lost soul apart from God finding me, throwing me on his shoulders, and bringing me home. I'm a lost soul apart from God sweeping the room to make a mess to find me. I'm a lost soul apart from God embracing me while I was his enemy and in my filth. I'm a lost soul apart from God pouring out heaven and his son dying on an old rugged cross to win me to himself. Do you get it? We don't have to measure up. We are not Christians because of what we do. We are Christians when we realize what's done and we beat our breast like the tax collector in Luke 18 and say, forgive me, a sinner. This is the proper response to the gospel. Prodigal character in this story is the character of God who emptied heaven to give us everything. Let's pray. God, thank you for this glorious good news. You are the one who has spent everything in order to redeem and save the lost. Forgive us for the ways that we are like Pharisees, the ways we try to earn your favor by our own good works. And help us to see that the only, this only ends in disappointment, comparison with others, and even death. Help us to believe this good news, that you are a prodigal God who gives us everything, your son Jesus. In his name we pray.